the Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. I'm so blessed that our guest today took a huge detour when she was 21 and left India for America, specifically for Ohio. O-H-I-O. I met Thridi Omegar in 1986 when we were both journalists at the Lorraine Journal. We spent many hours walking along the shore of Lake Erie, contemplating our small lives and big dreams in Lorraine, Ohio, where we became friends for life. Thridi is a novelist and a professor of English at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. She spent 17 years working as a journalist, then won a Neiman Fellowship in 2000. She's written 11 books, including my favorite, The Space Between Us, which is just breathtaking, and its sequel, The Secrets Between Us. She has two children's books coming out in the fall, Binny's Diwali by Scholastic in September, and Sugar and Milk by Running Press in October. Today, we're going to talk about how to find your voice and help others find theirs. Thridi, thanks for joining me. Oh, Regina, always a pleasure. You know, I still see us walking along the shore of Lake Erie, just out of school and figuring out what we're going to do with our lives. And you were like my soulmate. How did God pick you all the way from India and put you right there in Lorraine, Ohio? I, I, you know, I've always felt the same way. Your voice is something that it never leaves me, not just in your books, but just the way you see the world. And I want to talk a little bit about those first influences you had in India and how as a child, the world around shaped you. So to paint a picture of Bombay, the Bombay you grew up in that we now call Mumbai. Okay. Tell us what it was like for you as a child. So I think, I think there are two sort of prevalent memories that I have of myself, you know, growing up in India. One was, of course, as you would expect, books, right? Um, so, so I came from a family that was very loving and very supportive in many ways, but there was a lot of conflict, especially between the adults. And so books were my refuge. You know, they, they just took me away from the immediacy of family life and transported me. It was like my own private magic carpet, you know. And as it turned out, it brought me all the way to America. I didn't know that when I was seven and eight years old and reading this lovely British uh, children's author called Enid Blyton, which unfortunately she never made it big um, in the U.S., but the rest of the world, she still adored, and I certainly did as a child. So, so that's one memory. But the other was, even though I grew up relatively affluent, you know, certainly upper middle class in India, I was always so moved by the poverty that I saw around me. And I think it really shaped me definitely as a child, but perhaps also as an adult. And all the sort of easy things that middle-class people, frankly, all around the world say to sort of, to protect themselves, really. Because how else does one justify privilege other than to say, oh, the poor are poor because, you know, one, they're lazy or they don't work hard. You know, they don't seize the opportunities that we would like to give them. I grew up hearing all of this, and yet some part of me knew that none of this was true. You know, that this was just some easy way for us to be able to continue living in our little bubble of privilege, frankly, in this raging sea of poverty. But those, I think, were the two things that affected me most deeply as a child and, frankly, shaped me as an adult. So as a child, you're surrounded by two different worlds. 
you've got all the poverty outside, so to speak. And then inside you have a different kind of life. How do you, as a little child, take all that in and and sort it out and figure out where is your place in all this? Well, to be honest with you, I've said it before. I think it messed me up. You know, Uh, there was such a bridge between those two worlds, my own world of, of affluence and privilege. I mean, we had a pretty decent standard of living. My father had his own business. He was probably the most hardworking man I've ever met in my life. And he built a really good life for us. But it didn't matter because the minute you stepped out of the apartment building, you you could cross the street and there was a homeless family living like on the street. They would cook their evening meals on this little portable stove out in the open. And it just never made sense to me. And frankly, it was only when I became a teenager and started reading, you know, sort of political uh, books and things like that, that I began to realize that the poor do not always have to be with us, you know, that this was not some, you know, mysterious act of God that, that made so many people poor and a handful of people rich, that these were human choices that societies make. And I found that extremely liberating when I, when I first encountered that new way of thinking, again, through books, it, it felt surprisingly optimistic because then I felt like it was up to each of us. And, and I might just add how closely all this in some ways parallels the moment we are in right now. You know, you, you interchange the word race uh, with class though, frankly, there is a strong conflation of race and class in this country going on right now. But you do that, you just change, you tweak a little bit, and we are dealing with exactly the same issues, you know. So this moment in time here in America feels extremely perilous in some ways and extremely hopeful in others. I like the way you see that it, it's taking us to this moment in time that we can actually change history if we if we actually do take action. So I'm glad you're talking about this. You know, you mentioned that quote from the Bible, the poor will be with you always. And I think people misinterpret it as if, oh, it's okay that they stay poor. I think that we're always supposed to be challenged by the poor to be better people, to, like you said, use the privilege, whatever privilege you have to lift everybody up. And, And also understand the source of our own poverty, right? So you can have all the material trappings in the world, but if you're, you know, for lack of a better word, your spirit or your soul is poor, then in my in my book, you're, you're still a hurting and poor person. So, you know, that old thing of physician heal thyself. I, I think we are all called upon to do that also at the same time. That's a good point. Trudy, let's talk a little bit about how you made that decision to leave your family and your country. That That's such a huge shift in life, not just to leave a family for a while, like some people go off to college, you know, to another country, but to leave your country. What was the moment when you made that just that choice? Regina, I'll start by telling you that, you know, I'm somebody who agonizes over, should I drink a Coke or should I drink a Pepsi today? You agonize more than anybody I know. (laughs) Right now I'm doing neither, thank God. But, but, you know, I'll, I'll sweat the small stuff, but I never sweat the big stuff. The big stuff just seems to, I kind of bumble and stumble my way into these genuine detours in life. And thankfully, so far, most of them anyways, have paid off, you know. But look, I came when I was 21 years old. And I came as a graduate student to America. 
And can you possibly imagine a better life than to be a grad student in America? I can't. I mean, honestly, if I could do it all over again today, that's the exact same life that I would choose for myself, you know? So it sounds like it was a decision fraught with, you know, risk and danger. And sometimes when I want to feel good about myself, I'll play along with that narrative. But the fact is, it ain't true. You know, it was just like, oh, here's a Bob Dylan song that I really love. And, you know, I want to go and see what Bleecker Street in New York City looks like. I'm downplaying it a little bit. I mean, of course, when you, you know, when you leave family for the first time, I mean, really leave home and not just home, but country and friends and everything. You know, there's a tremendous sadness and heartbreak that follows. There's no question about that. But it also wasn't one of those decisions where I spent two years thinking, should I, should I not? I didn't quite imagine that it would become a lifelong thing. I thought I would come get a master's degree for two years and most likely go back. I mean, that that was sort of what I had in mind. So it didn't feel all that heavy when I made it. But the second part of your question of the moment when I knew, I had only been in the U.S. for about nine months. And... I can honestly say that even today, those two years, those first two years were probably the best years of my life. I mean, everything that we think of America at its most wonderful, every single thing happened to me in those two years. I mean, people were loving and welcoming and, you know, because I had grown up on American music and comic books and novels, I felt completely at home. Sometimes when I do book talks and people say, what were the culture shocks? I almost have to make up something because I know they (laughs) they want me to say, oh, I had never seen a car before in my life or something, you know, but I was very familiar with Americana. So all that was cool, you know? So I'd been here for nine months. I decided to go home for a quick, uh, I think maybe during some break, uh, Christmas break, maybe. So I go home for two weeks and I'm coming back. And I land in JFK and there was this enormously long hallway that you had to walk, you know, just to switch from international to domestic. And there was this probably the biggest American flag I have yet seen just hanging up, you know. And I can't remember if I was just walking down the hallway or if I was on one of those conveyor belts. I don't remember. Just remember seeing this flag getting bigger and bigger the closer I got to it. And it's happening right now as I speak. I just got goosebumps. I just got goosebumps. And I I had this thought that said, I'm home. I'm home, just like that. And then I kind of whipped myself into shape and I said, no, 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 no. I know what's happening. You're falling in love. You're not allowed. You're not allowed. You're on a student visa. You can't possibly fall in love with this country. It's not yours. You can't. You have to go home in like another year, you know. That was the turning point for me. And I have to say that I broke my father's heart. You know how close I was to my dad. I broke his heart when I told him that I was staying on for at least a few years because the whole family was like, I'm sure they were ticking off the days on a calendar waiting for me to come back. And my sweet father, when I told him exactly this story, he looked at me and I can still see that kind and sad expression in his eyes. And he said, I understand. That's how it happened. 
That is beautiful. Yeah, and you were also an only child. So your parents really, when you left, that was their life in, in a lot of ways. Very much so. My dad said to me one time, he said, when you left, I didn't just lose my daughter. I lost my best friend. Oh, Makes me your dad was the word kind if you look in the dictionary your dad's picture would be there i i have to agree with that and i of course i take absolutely no credit for that but it's true i got i got very lucky you did very blessed Thridi, tell me about how your voice changed from being in india growing up there and how it shaped you to being in america for a while and you know when you when you think of books when you think of characters in your head are you kind of bridging two worlds or do you feel kind of like you're writing as an Indian American author or just a person that just has a story to tell? I wonder the, the different voices within you, I guess. Yeah. I what that's like. It's a very good question. I think when I'm in the midst of a project, like when I'm writing a book, I don't think I'm thinking of myself at all. All I see of myself when I'm writing a book are my hands on a keyboard. So I'm not making any conscious choices of, oh, now I have to put on my Indian hat or now I have to put on my 10-gallon Texan hat. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to probe as deeply into the characters themselves. And if they happen to be American characters, then I'm, I guess I'm conjuring up some of what I know of life in America, you know, how they would sound, where they would come from, how they would dress, how they would look, that kind of thing. So for me, it's all about releasing the characters onto the page, you know, and it's their voice that I'm interested in. I'm just the typist. I mean, I'm just the stenographer, you know, I have nothing to do with that. It's their book at that point. You know, when you're that deep into it, it becomes their book. It reminds me of the quote, I think, about Michelangelo releasing the figures from the marble. That's right. And that's, you call it releasing the characters. That's exactly what it is. It's, ex- I think perhaps all art, I mean, maybe a painting, I don't paint, but maybe that's exactly the same thing, that the painting is already there. You just take that blank canvas and you, you know, you release the painting. I want to talk a little bit about your first writing, your early writing, because anybody who's listening who wants to be a writer, you kind of know you're a writer, but like I resisted it because I was so afraid I'll do, I'll be terrible. So I tried to do everything but write. I love this. You're an only child and you wrote anonymous poems to your parents. Tell us about that. <laughs> so I was a brat and anytime I didn't get my way, I mean, it wasn't the kind of family where you could speak back to your parents, heaven forbid. So, so what I used to do, I had this little, little study uh, off of the bedrooms and uh, I used to just scuttle in there and write a horrible rhyming, whatever rhymes with hate, I guess, great, I don't know, late. And I would write these quote unquote anonymous poems. And I would, what I remember most, I don't remember a single poem, thank God, but what I do remember was trying to imitate grown-up handwriting you know I must have just barely learned cursive you know trying to so that they wouldn't they would get fooled and they wouldn't know what who the author of those poems was but it was all about injustice you know that second piece of cake would have tasted so great you know that kind of stuff uh, that I wasn't allowed to have and I would slip into their bedroom and and leave these poems for them in the hopes that they would read them change their ways but never guess the um, you know that the author would remain anonymous and 
of course they knew they I was busted every single time, you know, and I'm sure somewhere somebody kept a stack of those poems, but my earliest form of writing and self-expression, you know. Beautiful. Well, we're already at the halfway mark. I want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Githridi Umrigar. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm so grateful that you chose to listen to mine. Thridi, let's talk about your journey as a writer. So you went from writing hate poems to teenage essays. You come to America, and you study journalism. Why did you pick journalism? Because the height of my ambition in those days was to go back and become a journalist for the Times of India which is like the New York Times here, you know, it was the biggest uh, paper in the country. And that was, that was my ceiling. That was the ceiling of my dreams. I couldn't see anything beyond that. I mean, I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I came from a family, the whole family was in the family business. All of my parents' friends were all either business people or bankers or people in those kinds of professions. There was not a poet or a writer or an artist to be found. And I would have been laughed out of town if I said I wanted to be a poet or I wanted to be a novelist. You know, I always feel that that one of the things that holds people back in life more than, or not perhaps not more than, but as much as lack of opportunity is also failure of imagination, right? You cannot achieve something that you cannot first imagine. And, and I think that's what happened in journalism. I grew up in a family. We subscribed to three daily newspapers. So we were all readers in that sense, but it wasn't the kind of family where, you know, tickets to the ballet were on the coffee table or tickets to the theater. You know, we saw movies and we read newspapers, but we were not, you know, an artistic family in that sense. And that was me to the core. And, and I just didn't know how to, get to that point. I knew I wanted to build a life for myself with words. And frankly, journalism seemed like the easiest way to do it. It was a way that I knew that I would be guaranteed a steady paycheck. And it felt something that was achievable for somebody like me in a way that, you know, writing books certainly was not at that time. So I had the privilege to work with you at the Lorraine Journal and then went to the Beacon Journal in Akron, where you worked also. And we were there, you were there, how many years at the Beacon Journal? I think like 15 15 or so. And I remember you writing on the side, you were doing great journalism, but I remember you working on a memoir and like, you were like, like a little mouse on the wheel, just writing, 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 writing. And I envied that. There was something in you that had stories to tell. And it was different than the rest of the journalists who kind of saw themselves more as reporters, but you had this identity as a writer. Did you feel like journalism brought that to life, that there was a moment when you had to kind of the road split and you had to choose like, okay, now it's time for me to tell different stories, not, you know, fiction. Right. Yeah. I think after years and years of sort of repeating other people's words, which is what a good journalist does, right? You're not, you're not bringing your own words or your own perspective even into it, right? Because objectivity is really the hallmark of of journalism. Yeah, I got to a point where I felt like I I wanted to weigh in on 
the issues that I saw around me. I wanted to have a say so. And as long as you're a journalist, you can't really do that, you know. And even in my long form journalism, you know, I was always trying, as as did you, we were always trying to bring a kind of literary, you know, in journalism, they would call it human interest angle. You, you know, to me, it was all, it wasn't so much about institutions, it was about people. You know, I wanted to tell the stories of real people. And in some ways, journalism was a fantastic vehicle for that. Uh, but as you know, our industry was changing. You couldn't really do magazine length or long form narrative journalism. And that that's where my heart was. So in a, in a sense, yeah, I left the profession, but the profession also left us, you know, people like us. And we were sort of forced to go down a different stream at some point, right? So you left to get a PhD. Tell us about when you have to kind of choose, do you want to be educated as a writer? Like, how did you know you needed to learn more about writing to write? Because I think there's that moment where some people like, I'm just going to sit down and write a novel. But you actually went and studied how to write a novel. Yes and no. Uh, So first of all, I didn't quit journalism in order to get the PhD. As David Giffels would say, I chose the hard way on purpose and that I continued being a journalist and I went to school part time. And I think I had more speeding tickets in those two or three years of coursework because I would work all day in Akron and then race down 76 to get to classes on time uh, for evening classes. And Nobody in the history of the department at Kent State had had ever done something as crazy as that. I'm still grateful that they allowed me, you know, I did all my coursework with evening classes. And I'm not sure that at that time I even knew for a fact that I would make the transition into novel writing. I just wanted to read, but I wanted to read with some rigor. I wanted to read with some discipline. And, you know, the weird thing is, like when most people get, get a PhD uh, what the, in, in, in literature or in English, you know, it's to become critics, right? So they are taking other people's work and then they're analyzing it and deconstructing it. For me, the exact opposite started happening. Every single time I read a great book, I didn't want to go and write an essay on, on that or a research paper on that book. I wanted to go to my desk and write my own thing, you know? And I think that's when it began to dawn on me that I was never going to be an academic in the traditional sense, you know, that I really was a writer. So you also uh, applied for a Neiman Fellowship and got that. How did that change your life, that experience? The Neiman changed my life tremendously because I had, so in the midst of working full-time, going to school part-time for the PhD, because life was not chaotic enough, I decided that that was the precise moment when I needed to start writing a novel, my first novel. And I didn't have a clue how to do it, but I was just doing it. And I got about 200 pages into it and hit a brick wall and just thought, I can't do both the dissertation for the PhD or the novel. Something has to give. So I put the novel aside for a couple of years, but it kept bugging me. And then one day in the newsroom, when I saw a sign for the Neiman thing, I mean, it sounded in its own right. It's just God's gift to mankind. I mean, it's one year of free study at Harvard where you can take any class you want. I mean, it's just, it's life-changing right there. But I had this secret plan, which was if I'm ever to go back and finish this novel, I just needed 
uh, not even just the physical time, but I needed the mental space. You know, it's very hard to do daily journalism and then also write creatively in the evenings. So anyway, I applied for the name and was lucky enough to get it. And then that's what I did. I would get up at 4.30 or 5 every single morning. I had rented an apartment that was very, very cold. So I would wear my tight Italian leather gloves and I would type away. And um, by the end of the first semester, I had a new draft. I had a novel that was complete and then got absurdly lucky, ran into this woman who was an agent. She took me on as a client. And by the time I came back for a year to the uh, Beacon, you know, I had a book contract. And, and I can't help but think that I was in the right place at the right time. It would have been very difficult to have had this trajectory, um, you know, from, from Akron. I remember when you came back and you came in the newsroom and it was like you were walking on air, like you had, you had changed so much as a human. I think it was like you were given this giant permission slip to finally like really tell your stories and like invite all those characters and all of the a life you had as a five-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I don't know, I felt like you were like just walking on air, like you were a different person. I, I felt that way for many, many months, that feeling, uh, you know, Regina, there were two things. I mean, first of all, I would walk across campus every day at about 4 p.m. And I realized that because I had worked for so many years, I had forgotten what that beautiful, magical 4 p.m. evening, early evening light looks like, you know. And just to be able to revel in that alone was like something I will always treasure. And every day when I would walk across that campus at that hour, I would say to myself, if I was ruler of the world for one day, one day, this is the law I would pass that every human being on earth should be given an opportunity to get one year out of their lives at, at a midpoint in their lives to just say, okay, what do I want my next 20 or 30 or 40 years to look like? It was truly a gift that was beyond compare. And it's sad that most human beings, you know, we are all just on this, you know, know. roller coaster and, and we never get that pause to reflect and think, you know. So, you know, you had this great opportunity, the Neiman Fellowship, and uh, and you grabbed it, which was wonderful. I wonder for those uh, who are listening who want to be a writer, can't take time off, they just kind of start with what they have. You know, maybe it's, they don't have a desk, they just have like the laundry room where the kids aren't screaming at them. What are the basic beginnings for, for somebody who wants to write? How do you just get started? So, first of all, you get inspiration from the stories of others. For me, uh, Toni Morrison was always my inspiration in the sense that I think she wrote her first three novels being a single mom to two boys, working as a very accomplished author full-time at Random House. And what Morrison always said was she would write in five-minute snatches. Readers think that in order to write a book, you need eight hours a day. And the truth is you don't. You can write in five-minute segments. Yeah, it's not ideal, but you work with what you got, you know? I mean, if you cannot tailor the reality of your life to suit you, then you tailor yourself to suit the reality of your life. I mean, we, we know this to be true for everything that we do. And the thing I most admired about Morrison was she also said, the children always came first. So that she might be writing this fantastic 
you know, brilliant passage in Song of Solomon. But if one of the kids said, Mom, I need a snack, she would drop what she was doing and she would go and make that snack, right? And I think being in a newsroom, you know, with police scanners going off and four <laughs> television and somebody screaming at you, deadline, you know, you learn that real quickly, that, that you just create the zone for yourself when you can, you write as much as you can, and then you get pulled off to do something else. So I would say keep it simple and keep it small. If you feel like you can write 2,000 words a day without, you know, disrupting the rest of your life too much, write a 1,000. Do half of what you think you can easily do and see how it goes. You know, start building that muscle. It's like when you lift weights, they tell you to start with one pound weights, right? You might be able to lift five pounds on the very first day, but why? Keep it small, keep it simple, and build that muscle until you really can use that five pound weight uh, easily. I love that you could you could lower the bar. We always think we have to raise the bar so high we can't right. hit it, so we give up. But I love that you're saying you can lower it. Instead of trying to do like a thousand pages, just do five hundred. Instead of yeah. eight, do ten minutes. Look, an average book is what? Anywhere from three hundred to four hundred pages. All right? right. You do the math. If you write five pages a day, which is not that unreasonable, I mean you can get an entire book done. In like six months, if my math is correct. I think people just make this out to be a much larger problem than it actually is. This is the other thing I wanted to say. Everything in life is a trade-off. I really believe that. In order to have the beautiful life that I do in America, holy cow, I had to give up a lot of family, friends, country in India, right? Everything is a trade-off. So you know what? There is no law on earth that says you have to watch television every single evening of your life. I mean, how much time do we waste doing things like that? Give it up. Take that time when the rest of your family is downstairs. You know, you be upstairs. Look, I've written novels with horrible carpal tunnel and other RSI issues. I mean, just in screaming pain. I just recently am doing a book where I've been having some problems with my eyes. You know what I do? I set my hands on on the right keys on the keyboard and I write with my eyes closed. I do. I type entire pages with my eyes closed and then cautiously open them and hope to God my hands haven't (laughs) slipped and I have garbage, you know. Uh, But I have more on more than one occasion lost the very last chapter of my book. It's just disappeared and I've had to reconstruct it. So what? I mean, if you love something enough, you have to be willing to sacrifice for it. It's tough love. Tough love. I love it. <laughs> okay. So speaking of, uh, of of love, I just got to have you close with your dad, the Kit Kat man. Tell us about your dad. Just your favorite story about your dad. He was such a beautiful human being. My favorite story. About, okay. my I, I suppose my favorite story about my dad doesn't even involve me. It was something that was told to me after he passed away. And, you know, we had a friend who used to help us take care of him. And one of my dad's favorite things to do was to go to Home Depot and just wander the aisles and look for parts that didn't exist. And then he would talk to the salespeople and say, my friend, you should invent this and this could create a jig. And I don't even understand half of what he was saying to them. But she used to take him to 
Home Depot quite a bit. And after he died, she came to me and she said, you know, every single time when we were checking out from Home Depot, uh, I guess they sold Kit Kats um, at the at the cashier and he would buy three of them. And she said, we would have to sit in the car and he would hand me one with a flourish and I would eat a Kit Kat bar. He would eat one. Then he'd wink at me and say, now, remember, this is our little secret. Do not tell my food police at home, which is what he used to call me, that, you know, I'm, I'm indulging in sugar and chocolates because he was not supposed to. And I laughed and I said, yeah, that sounds like him. And I said, well, what about the third one? What did he do with that? And he said, oh he would hand it to the cashier and say, this is for you. And I said, every single time. And she said, always three Kit Kats. So, so that's why I now think of my dad as the Kit Kat man. And every time I see a Kit Kat, I think of your dad. Yeah, I do too. Kindness of I do too. Man. Uh, Thridi, I really want to thank you for joining me. I could talk to you forever about writing. Tell us the best way to connect you uh, online, your website. Yeah, probably just, Umrigar.com, U-M-R-I-G-A-R, Umrigar.com. Yeah. And I'll put a link. And, and then people can email me through there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'll put a link to that on reginabrett.com. Well, my biggest takeaway today is keep it simple, keep it small, and lower the bar. So we should do something. Well, not quite lower the bar, but oh, just but it, So you can actually yeah. reach it a little bit, you know? The thing is, do it with love and pleasure and joy. Because why bother? Like, like people can have perfectly happy and functional lives without ever writing a book, right? It's not, it shouldn't be a chore. (laughs) No, it shouldn't be a chore. It should be something that you look forward to. So that's what I'm saying. Well, Trudy, I'm going to close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? I don't know if I do it every single day, but when there's a project or when there's a goal, What I try and do is do one thing every single day that takes me closer to that goal. It could be a slight modification in behavior. It could be something as basic as making a phone call and and calling one more person. I'm a great, great believer in one more phone call, you know, one more conversation. This is something I learned as a journalist. You think you have your story. You You think you've talked to your 10 sources. Guess what? Call the 11th person. And it's going to change everything. And again, you know, it's not that every single day I have something major like that that I have to achieve. But, you know, and also be with friends and be with people who you love. I mean, there's no better medicine on earth than to be around people who make you happy. That's and Bernie, thank you for being my friend all these years. And thank you oh, so much for being on the show today. Always. You're a very easy person to be friends with, Richie. Right back at you. Take care, Trudy. Love you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.